Welcome to The Writing Life, the podcast for anyone who writes. I'm Holly Ainley, Head of Programmes and Creative Engagement at the National Centre for Writing, here at Dragon Hall in Norwich, UNESCO City of Literature. It's early December already, and last weekend we hosted our wonderful City of Literature publishing fair with local publishers from all across the region. We're looking forward to the festivities continuing at NCW with our upcoming Dragon Hall social event this Wednesday. Do join us if you can. But first, we bring you a special edition of The Writing Life, where our CEO, Peggy Hughes, speaks to some dazzling voices in contemporary poetry. On the 22nd of November, poets Jay Bernard, Anthony Varney Capaldeo, Gail McConnell and Joelle Taylor gathered to celebrate the launch of an exciting new poetry archive collection towards a centre for contemporary poetry in the archive. This project, delivered by the British Archive for Creative Writing at the University of East Anglia, is supported by the Mellon Foundation with partners the National Centre for Writing and Norfolk County Council Library and Information Service. The project aims to promote and preserve the archives of contemporary poets of colour, LGBTQ poets, and writers from other historically underrepresented backgrounds and practices in the UK and Ireland. Here, Peggy talks to a selection of the poets about the archive and about their processes and work. They're also joined by the Archive Project's visiting poetry fellow, Will Harris. So I'm delighted to hand over to Peggy. I'm going to sort of start with you, Will, if I may, on this project. You've been the visiting poetry fellow for this amazing archive, the Centre Towards a New Archive. Could you give us the outline of what that project is and what it has entailed? It's got many parts. So the project was uh, set up by Justine Mann and... Jeremy Noltod. Jeremy is an academic and Justine is a librarian and archivist. And the idea was to come up with a different way of archiving in order to be able to take in deposits from writers earlier in their career or from backgrounds maybe underrepresented in traditional archives, which usually take in deposits at the end of a writer's career or posthumously. And my role was to be kind of hybrid figure, a go-between with the poets, and I also am part of the project in that I'm depositing my work as well in the archive. As you say yourself, I think you are not a neutral observer in the process, Yeah, you say that in, in the report. Being involved yourself, does that change the nature of your engagement with each of these poets that are with us today? Yeah, well, I mean, I'm not an academic. I don't have any academic qualifications. I'm just a poet, really. So I came to all the, the thinking about archives, not from an academic perspective, not really having read, I mean, archival studies is a huge field, and but not coming at it from that perspective, but coming at it from the perspective of someone who's just written since they were a teenager and kept, like, notebooks and photos and things like that. So I was trying to understand when I talked with each of the poets, we did little conversations, their own processes, and how that related to the books they published, and there are other things they'd done. And that to me was one of the exciting things about the project was demystifying the role of a poet, because I think sometimes it can seem like a really mysterious and vaunted figure. And my own 
feeling about writing and is that it's it's not like that it's a very daily and mundane activity and and that is the most exciting part and i wanted to talk to the other poets about that and, and i hoped that the deposits could evidence that as well the, the little dailiness of poetry yeah would, would you say you just mentioned your own archive and i guess the the desire to collect or to record across your own you know practice is that part of what drew you to this project as, as to the role i suppose maybe that's something which actually links all of us as writers a, a slightly archival mindset in the sense that i've always as a writer felt like i'm not very a not very creative person. I've always found it really hard to write, to actually produce material. So every time I write anything or make any notes, I'm always like, I'm always like amazed that I've done anything. So I constantly go back over things I've written and to try and make sense of it and to try and work with it and reshape it in some form. Yeah, so I, that, that idea of reusing constantly has, has always been a big thing for me. Um, Anthony, would you agree that the um, role of the poet is mysterious, following on from what Will just said? Uh... I would agree that the role of the poet is seen as mysterious uh, because quite often someone being a poet uh, is a reason not to take them seriously when they are, for example, speaking on a panel with a novelist or a human rights lawyer, that uh, we are there to provide uh, the rainbows and the gothic unicorns with their horns <laughs> dipped in blood. <laughs> What I would say is that most poets seem to me incredibly practical because uh, to produce texts uh, which either hang in the air and have to move an audience uh, or which have more space around them on the page, uh, then you have to produce texts which are going to be under a certain amount of scrutiny. And there's also the question of replayability. I am very guilty of, of reading novels once and never again, except in a few rare cases. But with poetry, particularly lyric poetry, there is the question of how does this replay, will it replay? Mm. And uh, for that, I think there's a different kind of scruple. I don't really go over things in the way that Will does, and this is perhaps because uh, I was very much invited to destroy my own archive. Uh, when I came up to Oxford uh, when I was 18 in a position of apparent privilege, uh, as an overseas student, I was kicked out of my room on the Friday night or Saturday morning of the end of every term, so the college could rent it out. And I was invited to leave my stuff in a basement. Uh, and the first winter I did that, uh, the basement caught fire. Then I was given book prizes for doing well in exams, but I never spent them because after that I was terrified I would just put books in the basement and they would catch fire. Mm -hmm. And I think this is very much the situation of a poet. You keep moving rooms, your books keep catching fire. Right. Has your sense of archive, I suppose, changed with a project like this where you're having to examine the idea of the archive, the idea of your own archive, looking back on the ghosts of archives that no longer exist? I mean, how does that feel now from this vantage? I would say that it's helped me integrate my idea of what constitutes an archive better than when I'm simply in the midst of writing and trying to produce something or get rid of something. And uh, I do want to go full post-colonial on this. So, for example, the idea of the Atlantic Ocean as an archive of memorable but unnumbered bones of enslaved and indentured people or people attacked by pirates, so-called, who should not be glamorised as Kai Miller writes mm. in his pirate poem. Or, for example, my grandfather bringing over palm leaf manuscripts in Sanskrit from India, which he kept locked in a cupboard in a room full of gods and demons, which he showed only to my brother because my brother was a silent male at birth and which was stolen at some point after his death. So I don't know where they are or how old they were. They could easily have been two or three thousand years old. 
that's another archive that is or was somewhere. And then food is an archive. When I was a child, I didn't like chocolate, which people kept on giving me, but I understood it was a high-value good. So I used to make it into a paste and smear it on my hands and imprint my hands on the pages of books I particularly liked. The best bit of a story would have a chocolate imprint. And I made a point of giving some children's books to the UEA project. And if anybody did an analysis, there would definitely be chocolate <laughs> DNA saliva traces on that. Also, thinking more seriously, I've never been a poet who writes easily about food because so much history is supposed to be archived in food for people who are not white. You know, you're supposed to write the nostalgic poem of mangoes in the corner shop. Whereas, in fact, the kind of poem about food that doesn't get written can be the poem of loss and rage. So Yusuf Kazmier, an extraordinary Palestinian poet uh, who for a while taught me Arabic, uh, flew into a rage one Halloween because he saw pumpkins as so much food waste, decorated pumpkins. He didn't say this with any premeditation. He just said one pumpkin would feed a village. And I realized that every decoration that I was seeing, he saw a village full of people through that lit up carved Gord. So, yeah, that that's a whole other way of archiving that might never make it into text. Mm-hmm. And and over the course of this year, I've been thinking of all of those. And I think mm-hmm. I will write something along those lines next year. Makes me think about the sort of, yeah, the, the, the fabric of the archive, so to speak. I wonder, Joelle, if you could come in here and just talk to us a little bit about the, 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 the deposits. This project asked you all to deposit into a, a sort of a living archive. You know, you're not at the end of your careers mm. looking back and delivering tons of boxes, but what were you doing then? I mean, for me, it, it was as a moment of clarity. That's what it really gave me. But having spent most of my life on the stage and working with spoken words and words, like Anthony Varney said, hang in the air. Of course, how do you deposit that in an archive? So I used a lot of written material. And the reason it gave me clarity is I found I was writing about things that I'm going to publish next year when I was about 15, 16 years old and the same ideas have been circulating my entire life. But it also meant that I had to try and find some kind of more audio, more visual content so we found old VHS videos of me, which I still haven't had the courage to look at, but I just figured it was such a privilege to be able to to be asked to deposit work and to think about the work and the meaning of archives that I just opened everything up. I, I literally deposited everything, including material that's not coming out till next year. It's a really interesting process in that way because you can't go and get a voice out of an archive necessarily. You can hear a recording, but how do you archive the live experience and that dynamic between a poet and the audience and what happens within the audience? So there's all kinds of things that you can't really cover except in description. But as a whole, the whole thing has really it's really affected my practice because now I'm understanding myself a little bit more. And I've always said that you know, my body is an archive. But of course, the archive is, it's where is the archive? It, the archive's in, a, in contested land. It's kind of, you know, it's an archive, but it's in, it's in an invaded country. So I've, really, it's been a, an, an incredible experience in the sense of plotting myself and plotting work and understanding where I've come from as an artist. I think I just want to ask you all that, if that's okay, because that gives you a chance to speak a bit to the process and to why you wanted to engage. I mean, Will said, you're all archivally minded, you've all explored that in your work. I wonder then, Gail, could we... It's a bit like blind date. I do apologise. Yeah. We did this last week, didn't we? Same same one question, yeah. number two. But could you say a little bit about you know what it felt like to be invited, actually, and what made you want to be involved? It's interesting listening to you, Joelle, speak about your deposits, because I think where maybe you went maximalist, I think I went minimalist. Mm. And that wasn't what I expected I would do when I was first invited onto this project. I had 
published a book, The Sun is Open, which is based around and uses material from a very personal archive of mine that I call the Dad Box, which is a, an Ikea box full of stuff related to the life, but mostly the death of my father, who was murdered outside our home when I was three and a half. And I think because of that book, and because it was so freshly on my mind when I was invited to be part of this, I assumed that I would deposit materials from the Dad Box to the archive in UEA. But when I started to think about the prospect of being separated from some of those things, of packaging them up, of sending them off, I panicked. I really panicked. And I didn't want to have to deal with that material again. And I really came to think about what is it that we are depositing or, or loaning? Because I suppose in this case, it's a, we're lending our materials to the archive, really. They're not permanent in that sense. We can get them back, which is one of the key differences between the storehouse model, I think, and some other archives. But still, there was a question for me around, is it live material? Is it dead material? You know, my own archive was so much about my dead father. And so there was a, an idea about death that was all the way through that. And I think I that perspective coloured my view of the archive more broadly. I also came to the project as someone who had done doctoral research on Irish poetry. You know, my background is as a critic of poetry, as an academic, and I had been to a very large and very well-funded North American archive as a PhD student and spent a couple of months reading through letters and drafts and manuscripts of some Irish poets whose papers were there. And I had also published work about Seamus Heaney and um, one of his poems based on some of the manuscripts and the kind of revised versions of that poem, to tracing the development of the poem really to the published version. So I came to this project from the perspective of somebody on the other side of the archive, the one sitting in the chair looking at the materials. And I know some of the kind of grubby, you know, academic practices that go on actually where people want to get their hands and what they see to be material that is somehow more alive or more original or that is giving, revealing more of the kind of initial impulse than the kind of published literature itself. And there was something I found difficult and that I was suspicious of about that process. You know, it, it seems like there's a loss of faith in literature itself, perhaps, if we also feel like we have to go to the archive in addition to reading the kind of final a kind of published version, if indeed we consider the published version to be final, and there are plenty of writers who, even like Derek Mahon, who even after the, the published version will go back and revise and make a new version and so on. So the questions multiplied, and you can hear that in my answer. It just more and more questions arose through going through this project, which is sort of why it was such a rich experience. Questions about originality, about authority, about power, about death and aliveness, about the status of literature and the status of the archive in relation to it. I think one of the key things I realised was that I wasn't depositing anything to the archive broadly. I was being asked to give things to a UEA archive in the city of Norwich, in the country of England, and so on and so forth. And that very specific context shaped what I ended up putting into it, which was materials that related to a pamphlet that I had published and launched in the city itself. And so there was a, it was very important for me there was a connection to place and that the materials that I was giving made sense in relation to this particular archive. But I have definitely come away with many more questions than I started with. And for me, that's been, I think, part of the richness of the project, actually. Well, as have I now. I mean, the challenge of this set of people is, mm. uh, I just want to bounce off in 17 different directions. But I think one thing that definitely did come out, again, reading the interview with, with that you, you've all done the interviews with, with Will, is that sort of, yeah, the voyeurism, sort of imagining your material to be being looked at by somebody else. Jay, could you pick up on that? Because I think that was something that came out of your uh, conversation with Will as well. Just how, how, how do you select through that lens then? Yeah, it's a really hard question. And I think it's one that sort of slowly been sort of dyeing the wool of my kind of experience over the last few years because I worked 
as a in an archive, uh, a really small DIY one. It was really there that I started to kind of engage with some of the theories and the concepts. And then I did my, similar to you, Gail, my, 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 my first collection was based on a set of archives. And even then, I remember sort of waking up in a cold sweat being like, what am I doing? Why am I involving myself in this? And for that reason, I made really specific choices around how I would engage and and what I would engage with. So, for example, I, I, I was really clear that I wanted to engage with material that was publicly available already, and I wasn't going to try and do that thing of that kind of, sometimes I think, necessary, absolutely, but but maybe it's it's got a slightly different set of intentions where someone tries to go and find the unseen material, the, the sort of private material, which I know existed, but I didn't want to do that because of a set of ethical questions that I had around my role as a writer and what that meant. So by the time I got to this project, those questions had already been really fomenting. It was funny because on the one hand, uh, this has been a, a really good opportunity to examine more about my own practice and my own kind of intentions and motives. But it's also been really useful because it showed me that some of my anxieties around around this question is to do with the, the material conditions that writers are in when it comes to engaging with the archives, right? So once upon a time, the problem was, well, and it still is in some respects, there isn't enough or we're not being documented. But now I think actually there's a, a real appetite for documentation. But, you know, I don't know if those two situations are so different to each other necessarily in terms of the actual position of, of writers, in terms of how you make a living, <laughs> how you generate this material in the first place. For me, similar to you, Anthony, I, I kind of found that I, I had slim pickings in some ways because I had lost so much stuff. In fact, I've lost an entire box of things because I tried to ship them from Berlin and they're just gone. I realised I've had probably 25 addresses in as many years, so each time there's a loss. And yeah, obviously be, being a writer is extremely privileged, but it's also, I think, sometimes a bit of a kind of, it's a self, self kind of generated or self-motivated calling. It's not something that you can necessarily live off, you know what I mean? And um I think my engagement with the archive, and particularly with this project, with this concept of a storehouse model, really highlighted that for me. It was kind of like, why do I sense that the future might involve just another form of dispossession when it comes to the archives? And how much thinking have we done around this this reflex that we've got now to, to collect what has changed, what, what, what table has turned exactly? Um, how do we engage with the power structures? Um, especially at a time when universities and big institutions and so on are going through these interesting restructures, interesting new relations. Where do we sit in that? So yeah, it was, it's been really, really interesting to kind of to, to kind of do it. But I suppose to go back to the kind of first point, it, it's also really brought up this question of like the materiality and the reality and the economics even of the archive. Loads in there to unpack. Are you still on the journey with that thinking? Have you reached any conclusion around that the questions you've posed yourself there? Or I think it seems to be this. This project is going to stay with you all far beyond this launch event that we're here to celebrate. But um, I don't, I've definitely not reached a conclusion, but I think definitely working through all of this, reading what everyone else has said and in conversation has been deepening. It definitely has deepened my thinking and it's made me, it's made me maybe pinpoint the question a bit more sharply or a bit more like precisely, which is, you know, why are we doing this? You know what I mean? Like, what is it and, and what is the possible outcomes? And what, what does it mean for future interpretations or future ideas of history if we're at a historical moment where we're spending time and money and resources and effort into what, into interpreting our own lives? Like, 
what does that do for interpretation in the future? Mm-hmm. You know, these kinds of questions are the ones that... So I don't have a conclusion, I've just got more questions. Just, just These are just small questions, massive questions, massive <laughs> questions. Anthony, what, what for you, what, um, and this is something Gail came out in your interview, the, the idea of the, there are always big questions bubbling in the archive, and this is where it gets really, really juicy and interesting, but I wonder, for you, what were the questions that came out in, in your own... You know, going back through your own material and the choices you made about what to deposit. Well, picking up on what Jay was saying uh, about the 25 different addresses, I very much relate to that uh, because there was certainly a point where I stopped counting somewhere around 25. uh, But uh, one of the differences, I think, in my approach uh, is that I have a a clear view on the destructibility of the archive. uh, And I do believe that the kind of archive uh, of underrepresented poets uh, which is being assembled here is the kind of archive which is disliked and under attack. Hmm. And uh, therefore what it's useful as is something that can be destroyed. So you can point at it and say, there was something here. There's a great power in being able to say, you have ruined our deposit. And if that is what happens, in some ways to have a ruined deposit is more powerful than to have an unvisited deposit. I'm not saying I wish ruin on the deposit. Mm -hmm. I'm just saying that if you don't have a deposit, you can't ruin it. And if you can't ruin it, then you can't defend it. So for me, one of the values of this is making writers pause Mm. in a time that tends to force acceleration upon us uh, and making us gather in a time that tends to scatter. In terms of what I selected, uh, I I didn't want anything but real people I knew. I thematically looked at uh, where my practice intersects uh, with the visual art. And another thing uh, is that I didn't want anybody to imagine that they could see my drafting process because I often would draft in my head or between loose leaves or the backs of envelopes and and different notebooks. And I I would not want anybody to say, we can see that in their first thoughts, capital day or such and such, (laughs) when in fact those were my last thoughts and Mm. the, the first thoughts were put in a recycling bin in South Oxfordshire. Well, the the last principle of selection I had really was what would I have wanted to look at if I were much younger? What were the things I've enjoyed looking at? And I realised often it was things like a dress or a pair of spectacles, a musical instrument, something about the tactility, the tangibility and, and substance of the writing life, not just the kind of papery traces of a writing mind. And so I decided to leave things like little objects and stones in the archive. Those were important. Thank you. Yeah, this podcast is called The Writing Life, so that's ideal that uh, it sort of gives a really visual picture of a writing life, doesn't it? Will, you've been nodding in a way that makes me think you want to respond to something or everything, but... Oh, yeah, I mean, so much has been coming up. I don't really know exactly who it's in response to anymore. It just feels like it's in response to everyone. But one of the things that has come up for me over the project and over thinking about my own work and wanting to deposit is the fact that I have things to deposit, that I have this ephemera, that I have this, yeah, this this material and, what, and, and my relationship to it. And wondering, maybe going back to Anthony's point about making things post-colonial about how that's informed by a lot of trauma that's carried down in my family like I often forget how and how near a lot of this stuff is that my um my family my my Indonesian side work lived through a genocide my grandfather was in prison he had to flee from one part of Indonesia to another and then he died of cancer a few years later and there was no trace of him I I kind of grew up with him as this like spectre my mum ended up moving to London quite soon after he died when she was still a teenager and she left behind a whole life there in Indonesia 
I think within the part of my family, because it's the kind of history of Chinese Indonesians within Southeast Asia, which is that they've been kind of constantly massacred and dispossessed and forced to change their names and lose businesses and start again from scratch. My mum's always had, a, I think, a slightly like anti-archival way of being. It's only occurred to me recently that maybe my desire to preserve and write and make these things is connected to that as a kind of form of redress, but it's also kind of helpless and pointless on a like larger scale because it's kind of funny to just put all, you know, put your faith in this this stuff and put it in an institution, like especially a university, which might be just sinking into the sand in a country, which is like potentially sinking into mm. the ocean. And yeah. The archive, eh? It just opens a lot of doors in the mind, to be, to be fair. Joelle, something else that, that you'd said, in fact, was sort of that meeting. I think we talked about bodies and the, the archive is mortuary or the archive is in, in work being entombed. Mm-hmm. Um, but one thing that came up in your interview was the idea of, of the ghosts of your past self that you meet. And I yes. think to an extent you all have been doing that, meeting yourselves on different roads. I wonder if you could say a little bit more about what that felt like. I realised through going through the materials that what I do and how I've survived this life, not to be too dramatic, but with the, I had a very traumatic upbringing and that meant that I could see a few years into the future and then something would happen and I would radically change and then all of that stuff would be in a little archive in my head vitrine to put away and then I'd start another thing so it's as though I've lived several lives that's what I was seeing so one of the like I was saying I went maximum <laughs> because I was I was looking not just at poetry but I was looking at prose and theatre writing as well and then the National Youth Slam Championships and the work there and all the live performances and one of the things that yeah really struck me is how painful the archive is they're little kind of vitrines of pain or little haunted glass jars you know and then when you go inside them there's the ghosts of yourself but there's the ghosts of everybody else as well which can be extraordinary like the snow globe um which i based the writing for the project on was given to me by the first man i knew who died of aids of close friend so that little vitrine there was full of everybody i knew in that time from the late 80s to the to the mid um 1990s so it's a painful space but it's also incredibly powerful and full of information full of full of love because you can't have grief without that sense of joy and love, you know. So that's kind of what it was, seeing that I um, reimagined myself. That's what I was seeing. And even though in all of my personalities I'm talking about exactly the same thing, sometimes the same phrase, which I wrote, you know, two years ago, thinking I was exceptionally clever, find out that the 14-year-old me said the same thing. You know, a bit clunkier, but basically the same thing. So it's really interesting seeing that I package things, but at the same time, it, you can't avoid the through line of life, you know. It's interesting that it's not just the same thing you're trying to explore, it's in fact the same words, even in the same order, mm. that have stuck The same somewhere. imagery. You know, it's, it's like haunted by my own poetry. Yeah. But, but I mean, I think that's true of a lot of writers, that we, we might decide this project's going to be about this very specific thing, um, we're gonna, I'm going to write about woodsheds and I'm going to focus on that. But no matter what we write, it turns out to be something to do with the body, you know, for me, or something to do with whatever subject is at the heart of each writer. Mm-hmm. And then we just keep circling these things, find, trying to find the best way of expressing it. I don't know if anyone else feels they do that. Because the reinvention for me isn't necessarily a rethinking. I can't quite work out what I do. Well, there are very clear phases that came out in the archives, I thought. 
Personally, anybody want to pick up on that? Yeah, it's, it's kind of interesting that you, you say that because I sort of ask myself, how much am I doing this deliberately? You know, mm. like sometimes at a certain point in your life, you've got to be a bit like, is this other people or is this me? And um, when I was like, you know, gathering together what the things that I could kind of deposit and the, I, was, I was a bit like, I can't find the things that I have supposedly been spending my life doing. Like they're actually nowhere to be seen. <laughs> it's true that I have... I have deposited all of my early notebooks uh, for a different project and that's because I just didn't have anywhere to live so I had to do it and it was a sort of necessity thing but then I, I sort of thought to myself I spend so much time writing and making things and, and doing things and doing projects and then when I try to find them and put them together I can't find anything and I sort of started to wonder how much of that was like, maybe what you're saying is this kind of like a repetition of a behaviour manifests when you then look back you know what I'm saying, like a, a, a belief maybe even, mm. or like a tendency. But so much of our material is, is in our, our heads, isn't it? So much, of, how, do we, how do we archive our thoughts, you know? So you talking about that made me think, well, so much of the work I know you do, is, it's very internal, it's very silent work. And there's something noisy about writing down every thought we're having. I frequently have no thoughts at all. <laughs> <laughs> you must have been on the mindfulness app. <laughs> this is why I think if anybody saw my genuine archive, uh, they'd find lots of little creatures doodled uh, in the medieval <laughs> manuscripts. But it's an interesting phrase, though, the genuine archive. You know, mm, and it, it yeah. relates to something you said a minute ago, Jay, about you know what we're doing and why we're doing it, and for whom we are performing or presenting the work because you have to imagine an audience for an archive and not in the same way as you have to imagine an audience for a poem maybe even differently maybe even with a much greater degree of self-consciousness actually and for me there was profound self-consciousness about thinking who is going to be reading these materials if anyone and for me it was important that the archive was less about me and more about the collaborative process that happens when any book or any publication comes together, um, which involves typesetters and editors and artists and visual designers and so on. So some of the material I wanted to put into this project was as much to do with ink, sweat and tears and actually people who are involved in this project as well, because the pamphlet that I, Father Mather, that I deposited materials related to had come about through a competition in which Jay was one of the judges and in which Anthony Vanny uh, wrote the most amazing essay um, in PN Review about. So I wanted to have things that were connected to other people on this project and also connected to Kate Birch and Helen Ivory and Ink, Sweat and Tears and the typesetter and, you know, all of these, this network of people who make a book happen. I think sometimes the fantasy of an archive is of, you know, this originating often male <laughs> but it's like you know dead male genius kind of thing like you go to the archive to discover you know the key to all mythologies or you know the, the, the sort of originating impulse behind the work that is sort of from a single imagination and in fact yes okay there's something of that that happens along the line for a poem to happen but for a poem to reach its audience it requires and necessitates a whole network of people and actually that's true of an archive too that an archive there's so many people involved you know, who are not in this room now, people like Justine, people like Jeremy, people like um, Viv and other students who volunteered to, you know, work on the materials. There's a huge network of people that make the archive happen. And so sometimes the fantasy is, or the sort of myth is, that it's about this sort of solitary imagination that, you know, the writer, the poet, but actually there are so many people involved in this process um, and in the kind of multiple layers of the process that um, it's interesting to, to pay attention to those, I think, as well. 
all of those actors in a network who all have different and sometimes competing kind of wishes and desires and, and hopes for what the archive can or can't be. I think that's really well put. That's something that came out for me, actually, that you're kind of all interlinked and interconnected. You mentioned Jay's role in, in Father Mother, but also um, Anthony uh, Jeremy Noel Todd's part in your early publication story that and you didn't think you'd ever meet, and here, here we all are, and it just felt lovely. But also with you. With, yes, back <laughs> in the day. Because, yeah. like, mm-hmm. I came to Norwich because you invited me to. You know what I mean? It's, yes, it's, yeah. it's this funny, like... And also, like, I think you way back when I was not much older than a teenager. Same with you, Joel. Mm-hmm. Like, it was actually, I think, probably the one of the loveliest things about this project was the fact that we were both on it um, at, like, very different points in our lives. But Joel has been, like, a humongous influence, like, and, you know, fostered my very first foray into poetry. So it's really interesting that we're kind of, like, brought together on this. It's really interesting how things like this keep happening. Um, where, I mean, not to get too hippie about it, but where you put energy... Um, you seem to get this response at the time you need it. And I really needed the archives. At the time I was asked to do it, I was going through a huge life-changing experience, which was, on the one hand, really positive, winning a big award, but on the other hand, absolutely devastating, losing a marriage and losing my home and all of that. And so... The very first thing I said when I was asked was, oh, I've got somewhere to store things. I need a back bedroom. Can't afford one. UEA, thank you very much. But then the process of it helped me to come to terms with that loss and to see that I, no matter what loss is, I was the same person. I was still still alive and still curious and still adventuring. Yeah, and I was delighted to find you here. Absolutely, Jay. Because we were part of a living archive, you know, of the... Um, for the record, so Jay and I met when I was leading Slambassadors, which is the National Youth Slam Championships. And then we became a kind of little crew of, of poets who are now pretty well-known and major editors and literary prize winners. But that whole period of time is its own archive because it's really difficult to explain what happened, what we did. I can tell you the events we did. I can tell you what happened in each workshop, but I can't tell you what that meant to us, each of us at different stages and... Again, we're back to that sense of how do you archive the energy of a moment, the, the unspoken things. Exactly. It, it's almost like you've got to you've got to do a lot of imaginative work, even when you've got material evidence, mm. because the relationships between, I guess, all of these objects and all of our stuff, mm. even as we're sort of putting it there to be examined, those relationships aren't actually necessarily obvious. Mm. A friend of mine says, give flowers while people are still here. It feels like this archive is a version of that. You're kind of getting the, you know, kind of somehow from what you just said, Joel. I think we've got time maybe for one more question that I'll sort of put into the round, which is um, to turn this all inside out. Obviously, we're talking about work that's been put into the archive, but the archive actually also generated new work. So I just wanted to ask you a little bit about that. And Gail, I'll come to you first, if I may. Having spoken about your book, you've, you've thought through the archive, you've used it to inspire work. What was the process for you here? What is in a piece or a, a piece of archive that gives a poem? Do you know what I mean? What? How do you pursue that? How do you know it's a poem in there, I guess? Um, well, I wrote, so I wrote an essay reflecting on my process, really. I suppose I wanted to try to understand it for myself, which was about what have I given and what have I withheld? And the withholding became, I suppose, as interesting to me as, as what the archive would hold. You know, I became curious about why am I holding back material and what is that resistance in me? Because I did have a lot of resistance to giving away a lot of things. And I suppose I became curious about 
I started to also think about, yeah, the, the relationship between sort of the dead and, and living material. And I, one of the exciting things, I suppose, was realising that some of these materials in Father Mother, this pamphlet that I published thinking about queerness and parenthood and attachment, still feels like material to be worked on. You know, these are poems that I hope to publish in a collection, um, which I haven't done yet. And so there's a sense in which that pamphlet still feels... Um, alive to me in a certain way that I think I'd even maybe forgotten about. And so, and there's there's material there that I might yet work on and transform to something that finds life in a book. So that was an exciting part of this process for me. I don't think I'm someone who easily produces poems on a kind of commission basis. You know, poem, it's so difficult for you know, the, the poems to arrive anyway <laughs> and to try to do them on command. I find it really difficult. So I, I wrote an essay thinking about sort of what I had done and why, but I think I came to lessons some of my suspicion of the archive if I can put it like that you know I've been thinking as I said earlier about the archive as being on the side of the dead on dead material and that's probably largely because you know so often poets archived art it does happen once they're dead already and also because of my dad box but I became more conscious of the ways in which the language in the archive can be alive and full of possibility and full of the possibilities of transformation yeah, I'm very grateful to have been part of this and, and some of the, the learning that happened happened in conversation, happened in conversation with Will and with Jay and with, you know, with some of the other poets here. So that's always a, a good way to learn, a fun way to learn. So, Anthony, what about you? What did you produce and why? <laughs> I produced a, a mixed genre sequence of poetic and reflective prose with things that look more conventionally like poems some like conventional experimental poems. And I wanted to reflect different aspects of what I thought an archive might be. So rather than exploring one settled idea of an archive, I wanted to, for example, look at what it's like physically to access an archive in a country where libraries have armed guards. And I mentioned that in one place. Or what it even means to archive if you grew up with a completely different sense of time. Mm. And this is what I'd really like to talk about because archives obviously have all sorts relations to our idea of time, past, present and future. And uh, because I grew up in Trinidad uh, in the West Indies in an Orthodox Hindu family who'd received Christian, mostly Roman Catholic schooling, and I'm not a Roman Catholic, but I was aware of several different calendars running at once. So they're the calendars uh, of colonial time, you know, which go from January the 1st and you've got school terms and so on. Weirdly, you get summer holidays in a country with two seasons, as it was then. Then there's the liturgical calendar of uh, usually Roman Catholic uh, feast days, many of which are holidays in Trinidad. But then people like my grandfather, who was a politician, agitated to have other religious holidays. So, you know, there are a lot of red-letter days, and there's even Shouter Baptist Day, which I think is a great thing, because the Shouter Baptist religion had been forbidden under colonial authorities. So liturgical time, colonial calendrical time, liturgical time being... Uh, multi-religious, not only monotheistic, and then other forms of time, but particularly going back to Hinduism and Roman Catholicism, there is in both of those the idea of the one, two, three, four, five, six kind of human time, linear time, and then the eternal sort of rounded time. Mm. And sometimes these things puncture or intersect each other. And Kal and Kal in Sanskrit, Kronos and Kairos in Greek. And I'm only saying those who can Google it, since much cleverer people than me will tell you better things, because this is a podcast. And... Uh, <laughs> 
this is something I want to explore in poetry and the archive, uh, that sense of sometimes uh, the extremely particular linear instant uh, opening out uh, into mm -hmm. around a moment. Jay, would you like to tell us what you worked on and how that came came about? Yeah, I think I think time is inescapable in this project. And, and for me, I suppose my questions were many, but I suppose the two main ones were, what does our current conception of the archive do to our idea of the future? How, how are we conceiving of a future? How much is our current notion of the archive gradually and, I think, terrifyingly revealing that our ideas of the future are coming to pass? So what is coming next? I think that was probably the, the kind of undercurrent. But but also in really practical terms, I went to Great Yarmouth and um, and I just really enjoyed it. And I enjoyed walking on the beach and I enjoyed picking up the stones and I really enjoyed talking to another poet who I'd kind of worked with and we'd had all these really good conversations and done a lot of stuff, um, going to the arcade and eating chips and things like this. And I thought, this is such a like interesting, rich thing. I sort of tried to blend the immediacy and richness and just joy and pleasure I had actually in that in that interaction and doing that workshop and meeting those people with these kind of grander grander questions, grander theoretical questions. Because I suppose it's a bit of a cliche, isn't it? But you have a moment and then you can expand that moment infinitely, really. So what are the boundaries of this thing that we're talking about? I think what what when we say archive, what do we really mean? Because actually it's 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 many. Thank you, Jade. Uh, Joel? Um, so for me, I mean, I was fascinated by what um, Anthony Varney and Jade were saying about time and its linearity because that's a huge part of it. But for me, I think it's story. And that's when I was thinking about how to respond to the project. I went back to the, the snow globe that I, I was inspired to write my last collection, Conto and Othered Poems, by staring into it. So I went back into that and of course it's um it's a derelict space now it used to have a gold angel in the middle and gold glitter would rain down on it but i've had it for 30 odd years and it's just it's derelict but there's something beautiful about that something abandoned so i went back into staring into that space and at the same time as doing that thinking about story and um thinking about 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 news as well, about uh, just at that time, the figures for butch lesbians who have been murdered in homophobic attacks had come out, 180, and that's a, a really vast figure for such a small group of um, women globally. So I wanted to try and capture that, but the most important thing, as I wrote a crown of sonnets, which I've never tried before, because, the, in case people don't know, so a sonnet's 14 lines, when you do a crown, you take the last line of the 14 to become the first line of the second sonnet and you go like that. And there are people who really plan this. So your 15th sonnet is kind of the key sonnet. It takes all the last lines to make a new piece. But I wanted to do it in a really open way where I didn't know what was going to happen, just that I wanted story. Because I, I always try to find, use poetry to try and trick myself into truth trick myself into some kind of honesty, find out what I really think about things. Um, so that's what I got. Um, I was thinking a lot about story. When you, when you try and curate your own life, it's really interesting what you don't put in there. 
you know, that's why I guess I was trying to be so open about everything. I deeply regret it, obviously, now. <laughs> but, but I think there is something, something to be said for me personally as a writer, this idea of trying to find out what secrets I'm not telling myself. A big thank you to everyone involved in that conversation for their time. And thank you to you for listening. If you want to find out more about the project Towards a Centre for Contemporary Poetry in the Archive, you can visit the UEA website at uea.ac.uk. If you have any questions or you want to get in touch, you can find us at Writers Centre on Twitter and Instagram. We're on Facebook and you can sign up to the NCW newsletter at nationalcentreforwriting.org.uk. As a UK-registered charity, we rely on the generosity of our supporters to make our work possible. You can make a donation over on our website by going to the Support Us page. If you enjoyed what you heard today, please do consider subscribing to the podcast and leaving a rating and a review, because this helps other writers to find us. Thanks again. Keep writing, and I'll catch you on the next episode. <laughs>